KCSU Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino, and this is the Henry George Program. This is a show about land use, policies, and politics. Today in the program, it is a book club. We are joined by Max Kapczynski, and we're talking about Robert Caro's The Power Broker. Giving an overall scope of what the book covers and some analysis on land acquisition programs in the book, as well as uh, more of a positive vision of what public works programs can be to avoid what we see in this book. So let's uh, let's get into things. So welcome, Max, and let's talk the power broker. Hi, Mark. Yeah, let's let's do it. After working our way through this entire landmark doorstop book the, um the book 1974 the book is 1200 pages long it's all about robert moses uh who the master builder of new york city the most powerful man in the history of really urban design that in the 20th century and that he ran new york city uh and the, the scope of the book is is you know it's about his entire life he was still alive when the book came out yeah but, yeah but we get from you know 1890 or so to 1970 or so and we see a lot of things change oh yeah well it goes through it goes through the entire life of this man everything that shaped him um every battle that he fought and eventually he started winning battles and started shaping the world around him and it goes into absolutely every detail every figure he interacted with Everybody who was in power from, like you said, the 18, every world event and major pow- figure of power in New York City and New York State and all the world, too, from the 1890s to the 1970s. And it's in, it's absolutely incredible. It's a, it's a great book, not only for, I think, describing how cities work, but also just how power works. Like, I'll say, like, one small thing, I have, you know, been in extremely vaunted power in uh, in a community radio station in which we're currently sitting. <laughs> I mean, serving different posts, it's like, boy, the way that he runs a city and just the way that people backscratch each other, work their way up and just stuff, it's like, boy, I bet every single org in the world, you know, you would, you would see these same kind of principles happen because I sure have. Oh, yeah, you start to see it absolutely everywhere. At work, you see it in politics around you that you're a part of, politics around you that you're not a part of. Everything, you just, and people don't, like there's not a sense of power uh, in people's minds the way that it really is right now because I'm sure every major powerful organization like you said is like this but people don't even think about power as as like it is described in this book as relationships between people who have and have some things and want other things and are going to do yeah dirty and terrible things to 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 enact their agenda and to increase their power and to it, to strike their vision uh, onto all of us. And and I think as far as getting politics done, as far as making things happen through a political system, I came into the book uh, incredibly you know brain poisoned and cynical, and I came away <laughs> I think thirty percent more cynical. Uh, Ooh, oh, thirty percent. Well, you know, I I might have come away. I might have come away less cynical, but I also. Uh, no, that's a good question. I, I'm not really sure where my quotient stands. It definitely moved around more in some places and less in other places, but um, definitely just more embittered about the uh, the the people that mostly hold majority liberal centrist power in this country, what they think power is, what they think 
an agenda should be, how they think things should be run, what, what matters to them, and the history of yeah of that kind of New York Times, the Atlantic slice of society. Definitely left with complete, just completely blackpilled on that segment of society. So it's funny because I think if there's one thing Robert Moses is most famous for now, he's like famous as the guy who sparred with Jane Jacobs about saving Greenwich Village, which yeah. is kind of like the... You know, David and Goliath, he's the highwayman, and she understands that Greenwich Village has, you know, soul power. And uh, and then she stopped him be, by making people band together. And, like, I like the fact that uh, it's treated so unimportant. It's, she, her name doesn't come up once in the book. I was about to say, is her name mentioned ever in this book? Not once. He actually did write a chapter. The book was originally... 30% longer. Oh, was it in the cuts? It Greenwich in the Village? Cuts. Yeah. Oh. So, need director's cut. Uh, I think that's in the Carol papers. So I think they are not released, but I imagine someday uh. you'll probably see the, the uh, <laughs> what has been out of here. I'm less curious about that because I know more or less what happened. I'm curious what else got cut. Oh, yeah. Well, in reading, um, I read most of, no, no, no. I should have said, I, instead of telling the truth, I should have lied and said I read all of Death and Life. I read most of Death and Life of America, Great American Cities. Yeah. Having read that before this, it gives a great understanding of what, I guess, the most left of this, of the crowd that Jane Jacobs came from, like the sort of, you know, well-meaning reformers that she was still part of the crowd of, speaking out against this power. And the view that she had of cities, of highways, of public housing, these all these developments, it was good to see that, like, that was good pre-reading for this. Yeah. I, I mean, she obviously is good at talking about what works in cities, what doesn't work in cities. What you come away in here is what happens in cities usually has very little to do with what is good or advisable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's more about what kind of political machine can operate and profit from whatever you're doing. Yeah. And uh, if you have something that's working, because I would say uh, there's a lot of lessons to get out of the book. But, okay, let's just for... Just to get out of the way, let's uh, together give a two-minute recap of the entire narrative arc of the book. So let's 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 have one data point, and we'll go back and forth. Uh, he first grew up in a snobbish household uh, through kind of you know fairly fairly uh, fairly established wealth, uh, you know, and 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 snobbishness. And yeah, kind of second-generation money, pretty much. Yeah, right? went to Yale, went to Oxford. Yeah, exactly, um, and was raised in an environment that held the poor in contempt and he you know took his family's uh lead and ran with that of his contempt for those who were yeah lower class less than that he knew better than them and can and should rule over them essentially he wrote a phd at oxford about civil service in which he says only university men should rule and everyone else should be kind of low level proles and that's what a good civil service is. Yeah. And this is a person who, like, had to beg for money throughout his life, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, maybe get it bidding ahead. But he, with this attitude, he comes into civil service, basically. He wants to become a civil servant. Yeah, so he's like has this nice, shiny Oxford PhD. He's taken into a reformist uh, mayoral org in, uh, in New York City in the 1910s. Uh, and they're going to they're gonna change everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, short short answer. They don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, take on the Tammany machine. You know, you know, end the you know the the 
civil service like back padding. Yeah, civil service exams already in the case he was going to give everyone a report card and that didn't yeah. work. <laughs> you know, just it was just like, "Hey, wait, you're going to take away stuff and give us nothing? Okay, how about we don't do that?" Yeah, he was an idealist. He didn't work he had no idea of how to execute other than just by working incredibly hard and being incredibly passionate. Yeah. But he did, uh, he was kind of out you know, on the street, you know, just like no job. But then he was allowed to kind of serve uh, in the government staff due to- Yeah, because he was, he was kind of thrown out, he was kind of thrown out on it, thrown out after failing to pass civil service reform. He was kind of tossed right out. And then who pulled him back in? It was uh, Bell Mouskowitz. Yeah. Because her husband worked with him in New York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then, you know, he's taken in to kind of be, I believe, chief of staff mm. in, in Al Smith's or which is in work- and work on a basically a lot of kind of restructuring of uh, of kind of larger civil service with New York, which is actually a reformist project that made a lot of political sense. So they're able to do it, you know, kind of you know mixed results. I think there was eventually a lot of kind of restructuring and government posts statewide, but yeah, you know, that's not really what the book is about. It's kind of a side sideline. Uh, but more or less, what's important there is that he became very close to the governor, Al Smith. Yeah, yeah. And Al Smith uh, comes away with the book, just charming guy, lovely guy. He was kind of just one of the many nameless Irish dudes, just rise in the Tammany machine. But he was actually just, you know, kind of a solid guy who actually knew how to serve his communities well and actually had a good kind of moral fight for all sorts of Things like you know making uh, the tenements of the Lower East Side work better. So yeah, and he was against prohibition and all this stuff. And the book, it's wonderful that it takes all the time and it takes the probably the biggest sideline for Moses's life and, and affairs is telling Al Smith's entire life story and rise up until the the moment he meets Robert Moses, yeah, Carol, and then continuing his story almost in parallel with almost as much detail. Caro said that he actually wanted to follow us up with a biography on Al Smith, which is like, boy, I wonder what he didn't cover. Cause, Seriously. Because in a short amount, he really comes alive. Uh, and Bell Mouskowitz kind of famous, you know, really painted well in this as being someone who just could teach how do you work with political systems and know you have to serve these people to get this political act. She was just a really smooth operator in knowing yeah. how to make things happen. So, well, and with this, like the the pure heart of the reformists, like they just wanted good things, and they didn't want they were against corruption. They we didn't want will to not money. compromise exactly. And they were all moneyed, so they didn't have to take money. They didn't have to work their way up. Like if you like, don't have Al money, Smith got think, in the Tammany machine yeah. and got to where he was because of patronage, and then was able to, with his power consolidated do any good thing that he could because he kind of was able to distance himself from the machine with the power that he had. To, to be a bit uh, uncharitable, you could say that a lot of what you see is the most uncompromising and idealistic people now tend to align with being pretty privileged, you know, possibly trustafarian. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> if you are actually serious about getting results, it's very hard <laughs> to do it and not have a lot of privilege. And this is, you know, that's kind of the reformers throughout here. Well, and it's Robert Moses as well, because he was, you know, yeah, like being bounced out com with completely nothing. If he didn't have family money and a name and the ability to just to wait around for the miracle of, of someone who could pick him up just on the strength of his convictions in Bell Moskowitz, he would have been out. He would have had to start working at the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, it's, if you want to get stuff done, you need a lot of people who <laughs> have the leverage to walk away, do whatever they want, say, like, I believe in this and be arrogant and make things happen because most people in society 
90, you know, 9% of people don't have that luxury and you can boss them around. Yeah. And he, he was very good at the few arrogant privileged people in this book are very good at bossing around everyone else out because they are the only people in the driver's seat. Yeah. Well, and as soon as Moses got stomped on and then almost lost everything, he, it, he, he, he quit, pretty quickly realized that he wouldn't let himself get stepped on again. And he would figure out how, and again, this is the through line through once he gets a little bit of power, and how does he get into parks exactly? I, I think under Smith. I, I was just skimming this again to recap myself because we're going back f- four months or yeah, something. Oh, exactly. So Smith just says, "Hey, you want to work on prisons?" And it's like, "It's like, no. How about I work par- on parks?" That uh, sounds nicer. Yeah. So again, not- he's an idealist. He likes big, beautiful parks and expanses, and yeah, serving the people. Even like these these wide sweeping ideas of serving the people, even with this like this sort of institutional reform like reform house or whatever uh attitude of uh, that he knows what's best for people and he was like a snob it's like oh look yes, at, exactly. look at all of this kind of dirty stuff on the left side let's make this a nice park yeah. it's like this that's actually like if you're a snob that's probably one of the better things you can do is like try to have less dirty piles of ashes and more kind of nice parks or something well, it's true new york in the 1920s was i'm sure it was awful like yeah, he goes in a big thing tammany was they made their money through public works projects and 50% just went to cronyism yeah. and they just did a crappy job of actually doing anything. They did not build parks, they did not do anything well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so he was working on parks and one of his big projects are, you know, New York City's population's booming, they need more open land, Central Park isn't nearly enough, and there's a ton of parkland that is conceivably open in Long Island. Because Long Island is still... Beyond Queens, and even big parts of Queens in the 20s, rural, completely yeah. rural farmland. A bunch of oyster farmers. You exactly, know. like swamps on the south side and, you know, uh, robber baron manors on the north side. Yeah. It, East Egg or whatever. Yeah, it's 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 just a bunch of, and like within 30 miles of New York, you could get out there and like have just, you know, these really nice parks, you know, Bethpage and that's even closer to some other parks. It's like, oh, let's 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 acquire this land. Make a bunch of parks. A lot of this is actually even utilities. Like they own land because it's near a reservoir. Let's just make this happen. Uh, has a lot of success and like goes hog wild and says, yeah. here's the plan. We build a bunch of kind of nice, you know, parkways, you know, which are basically a park in themselves because driving's, driving's a joy. Driving's fun. Because it's the 20s. Yeah, you're, 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 uh, you're driving your 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 watch out everyone I'm a motorist. You still Just see it through, through movies through the thirties. Like it's if anyone's in a car, it's usually someone having a nice scarf on and you know, it's like yeah. it, it looks like a looks like a blast. Uh so you uh But there was no infrastructure for it. And he sees this this new and again, this like this this completely upper class privileged, snobbish idea of of everything, of land and parks and of transport. But what's funny is he is a huge snob who wants to serve the upper middle class, but then goes head on to the upper class, which yeah. is, you know, the Vanderbelts, the J.P. Morgans, the uh, Carnegie's and all these other just barons who are just own all this land and use it for like, uh, you know, this hunting grounds they never use. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, in a couple of beautiful chapters. He tries to take land from these these rich people. Yeah, that's just that he he uses Albany and he writes he writes a, a bill saying, okay, we're going to acquire parkland. Uh, there's an uh, there's an appropriations process to make it happen. Appropriations usually means you need to appropriate money through the legislature. In his case, 
uh, he used uh, an old lumber law, which appropriation means you walk on land and then the state owns it, <laughs> which is like which is so cool. <laughs> and he was able to do this just because he had a vision in his mind. He had something he wanted to do. And he nerded out over the laws. He read every single thing. He passed a bunch of laws. Yeah, he, he was, was he was able to learn that mechanism. And then with that first little grasp of power, he tries to walk up and just take it to the most powerful people in New York. And he basically does. And he's locked up like, in court. barely works. Like, he almost is ruined a couple of times. Like, he almost is, you know, f- yeah, found guilty of d- severely breaking the law a couple of times. And it's only with Smith's backing yeah. and his cleverness that he's able to not just get completely bounced out. And this is one thing I want to talk about. The book, uh, and this is very appropriate for the show, 90% about land acquisition. <laughs> Yeah, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. I want to see land be acquired and get used for public projects. I love to see it. In the book, I'd say here is the big thing. He went at it almost always the hard way. You look at how <laughs> Singapore acquired its lands. They just kind of, oh, yeah, let's go from like uh, 10% to 90, just like nothing. And like they just did it. He did things as hard as he can like and just bashed his head. Against yeah, the, paying market price for yeah. land from people. Like, oh, my God. That's insane. Uh, so then uh, eventually learn to say, okay, to get more stuff done, let's start to compromise. Let's actually avoid the richest people. Let's stay away from the very richest, go to some farmers. Okay, let's actually pay off some redevelopment firm. Like if, if you're going to like have Long Island vote for you, try to make some money for their for the development. Yeah, their mo- the money to interest, you know, keep taxes, you know, keep taxes off people's backs. And it was shown through the, the root of a couple of his state parkways. Garrow uh, used it as... A kind of a device um, when he when Moses was going from this shift after his first you know hard won battle against the rich people sort of sliding into a compromiser and eventually a collaborator with the rich people he shows as the as the route of one of his parkways moves you know from the nice you know rich person's estate it kind of just, it would move south and it moves south and instead of you know bisecting the parcel of a Vanderbilt yeah. it you know chops right through the only hard won land of like some poor some poor schmuck farmer on Long Island. And then Carol's like, oh, well, you know, it took a little bend south. There's no reason to do it. Made the parkway longer. Missed the rich guy's estate. Wonder what happened there. And that's funny because someone lost. It's even more damning when no one loses, per se, which is when, like, Nassau County, everybody hates his guts. And then eventually he says, okay, let's actually work with them and secretly allow the brothers of the people on uh, on the you know the councils or the commissioners of the county and it's like allow them to buy the land ahead of time and then they make a bundle of money. It's like you know you win, I win, everyone thinks it's done. And who loses? The public loses land, pays a bit more, and these people get rich. The farmer gets shafted. Yeah, but like it's it kind of happens invisibly. You know, it's yeah. not it's not a major thing. Abetted by the press, a continuous through line for the uh, the first eighty five percent of this book is. He learns one of the first lessons he learns is that you have to have the press on your side. Yeah. And it doesn't really go into like how he gains favor with these press people, except for just like being nice to him, them and throwing them big dinners and stuff. Yeah. I mean, like Salzberger, I mean, I think in the past, like they're all a bunch of goody goodies who are like, okay, you know. They, they think he's a reformer. Like they're, they're on his side because he's a reformer and he convinces them, like, you got to stand by me in the in the headlines and the editorials because, you know, it's the because we're fighting against the moneyed interests and all that stuff. And the thrilling through this book is, the press takes like thirty years to catch up with when he starts doing bad stuff. Well, he was decades. Really, yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, like, there's like this fight against the Taylor estate that goes yes, on the for Taylor years. Fight. And this was the front page of New York Times, and he was he was the good guy. Yeah, you know? oh, so, he was. And that and that and that carries a lot of inertia. 
Uh, so this goes on for a while. Eventually, now it's the Depression, and he actually he loses Al Smith because he tries to become president and fails. Now he's kind of on his own, and he's more or less kind of, you know, dicking around in, in, in uh, state parks, working against FDR, who's now the governor. Oh, yeah, just the whole through—and just, the, and again, that, that arc about how he and FDR hate each other and are just spiteful and mean to each other. And this is the cynical just thing. hostile. It's like, what actually makes stuff happen? Either there's boring economic processes or there's, like, five powerful people who all hate each other and just bash heads and make stuff happen. Yeah. Or the, both. I mean— in the And they work together. And yeah. In this book, you have Moses, Al Smith, FDR, and then later Nelson Rockefeller. And LaGuardia. Yeah, and LaGuardia. That, like, <laughs> this is a, that is a very good thread. That is just like the—and again, Moses was on, like was able to propel his power and his standing to the heights it made off of federal money. Federal road building, federal housing, federal—all this federal money, every all this WPA stuff, just like just pulling the purse strings controlled nominally by people who hated him. Yeah. And he was able to build his power like that, which is just crazy. Well, in sidebar is that he really didn't make something out of nothing. He was extremely competent at just being there at the right time to make stuff happen, to say there's a bunch of funds and they're going to pay for stuff. He had blueprints ready he had stuff done he would make it happen he would he, use every resource at his disposal like he would just yeah. find like five grand sticking around in some fund yeah he would find little like triangular plots of city land and he would just turn it all he realized everything that he had was a resource and he started and he just acquired more and more positions that he was in charge of more and yeah. more power more and more personnel and he absolutely like he used everything at his disposal and he developed and matured like everything was like a bond that he could, you know, keep an eye on and that was that could, you know, grow in value. Yeah. So we'll get more into bonds in a second. But I guess the Depression hits Tammany's belly up. Tammany goes broke and they're looking for a reform candidate. They tr- they almost ask him to try to be mayor of New York. Uh, he doesn't uh, largely because and here is actually a very cool a Henry George cameo. Yeah. Uh, Samuel Seabury, uh, old Georgist who's like kind of this old reformer, seems to be kind of a fuddy-duddy, but with actually pretty good integrity, kind of says, like, I will not compromise with Tammany, and I can just kind of call out that Moses is a rat. I will not allow this guy to do anything. Uh, and, and that would have been Moses running as a Democrat. No, fusion. which oh, is fusion. Oh, okay. Which is Republican slash, it's Republicans are not Tammany, which is default uh, Democrat. Oh, okay. So LaGuardia is basically, you know, he's, to say he's a Republican, he didn't really align with larger Republican stuff, but he was technically a Republican. Just not Tammany. We didn't say it till later. Like Lindsey was Republican, then later switched to be a Democrat mm. to kind of call the bluff or something. It's, you know. It's local parties. Who well, and parties meant such different stuff than they do now. It's it's yeah. almost meaningless, especially in, especially in New York. It's almost meaningless to think about parties. Yeah, it's it's all weird because the now. Republicans are the upstate folks who are just like real kind of conservative old upstate money. farmers. And then yeah. <laughs> during the Depression, increasingly, and during the War Years, uh, the rich landed interests. Yeah, who because and when the Democrats became identified more with with the New Deal, the Republicans started organizing in opposition to the New Deal. Yeah, so. He first works more with LaGuardia. They do a lot of projects. He gets LaGuardia's parks happening. They, they, you know, it's it's a nice, you know, symbiotic relationship. Then, because of the anti-New Deal interest, the anti-New Dealers say, "Hey, Moses, 
uh, we actually hear you're a Republican who might want to run on an anti-New Deal platform as governor of New York. It's like, oh, yeah, hell yeah, I'll do that. Meanwhile, he's spending tens of millions of dollars a year in New Deal money. <laughs> yeah, but he actually just kind of is just he hates FDRs. He goes for it. Uh, well, he wants to get that, like you said, executive. He wants executive power. He wants more power. The only, like, he needs FDR. He needs LaGuardia like he needed Al Smith. Someone with his back to sign bills and to make appointments and to allocate money and all that stuff. Yeah, this is the only, it's it's an irony that he's so powerful. This is the only election he ever ran in, and he just completely died. He made a horror, it's, it's foreshadowing for, like, when it's not unambiguously and stacked in his favor, the situation. Um, he just made a complete, just a complete mess of himself in the media. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just, it was just a very badly run campaign. He just was weirdly hostile. Because, like, if you're hostile in back rooms with the different powerful, you know, <laughs> just, like, people who run, you know, development firms and insurance companies, like, yeah, you can be you can be a real jerk about it. If you're running for governor, you had to be, you had to kiss babies. And yeah. He's not going to do that. No, he did not do that. He just released press conferences just absolutely... Yeah, making false accusations of his opponent, just being his normal self. He did not tone yeah. down his normal self in any way. So he he fails, almost gets removed from local city power by FDR, now president. Uh, this this fails largely because he gets the media to go around him. Yeah, FDR tries to do a coup on him with LaGuardia's like pretty much soft, not enthusiastic support, but soft support. Yeah, Legu- FDR tries to get rid of him with LaGuardia Le- letting it happen, and Moses stays in power. LaGuardia wants to make friends, and FDR is a more important friend than, yeah. than, than Moses, to be honest. And they're allied on the New Deal. Yeah, even though uh, even though Moses can actually make things happen. Uh, so he stays on. He does a lot more projects. He does a Triborough Bridge, a mm-hmm. major, major— And like you see at like the beginning, the Park Project, $15 million. The Triborough yeah. Bridge, like $400 million. And yeah. this is this And that's is like the bucks. first like knee in the curve, is the Triborough Bridge, and that's— his his so um, so yeah this is when, when this is when the authorities start coming this in this is when the authority okay so it comes in as the authority right away as for yeah. the triborough bridge authority yeah so this is uh, authorities being and this is i think one of the cool things the book is large land acquisition and what part of it isn't the rest is about other forms of municipal finance uh the uh, so good. It's so good. Uh, so the authorities, this is something of saying, okay, let's say you want to build a Bornell Bridge. Here's the classic way you do it. Uh, you uh, you build a bridge, you sell bonds on it, then you pay off the bonds through some sort of financing structure yeah, like tolls. it's built by Caltrans and it's funded by the legislature with a bond issue or something like that. That's the, that's the classic kind of way. Well, and if you need, like if you don't have the funds up front and you want to yeah. do it, you can pay it off through tolls or something, or you could do local like property taxes tied to the bridge or something. Something you, like that. You pay off the bonds. The if bridge- you're in California, you just don't. You just you just cry and you don't build any bridges. That's 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 the uh, that's the good <laughs> low effort way to do anything. Just don't do anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then eventually you sell off the bonds. Everything's clear. The authority dissolves. End of story. It's great. It's normally and, and this book goes deeply into it. That's how authorities are normally used in this country and even going back into Great Britain when they were first formed. Yeah, but that's I, kind of how they were used. Except for small cases, and there were some old ones which are. Longer lived authorities, such as like uh, like a port authority, would be yeah. a classic example. And these would tend to be okay. Instead of just working on one bridge, how about you get all the different stuff owned by one authority? In this case, would be a lot of bridges. Yeah, and you can actually kind of use this as a portfolio of public works. 
and then offer bonds against all of your proceeds. So you don't have to worry about one bridge. And what's nice about that in what his big gambit is, okay, I never have to turn off the money faucet. Yeah. I can continue getting tolls forever because the Triborough Bridge will pay for the new bridges, and the new bridge will pay for more bridges, and more and bridges. He will writes be- it into the law. Yes. He writes the law that gives himself this power to make a, a city agency that, when everyone else in the city and in Albany thinks he's that they're signing into existence an authority that is going to go away as soon as the bridge is paid for itself, they are creating a little empire yeah. with it with that Robert Moses will run for thirty years. Yeah, and this is the big threat of the book is used to have one political machine, which is the Tammany machine. Mm-hmm. And it was a labor machine, and you have create a bunch of jobs, a bunch of money comes in, a lot of jobs come out. Well, just pure, like, wasteful patronage, too. <laughs> yeah, so he created the first functional, new-style political machine. Yeah. And it's a machine where drivers pay money in tolls. You create more roads for drivers, and this pays for more public projects, paid for bonds, and a lot of other and people— And you create goodwill and electable— Projects that, yeah, the pol- projects that you politicians can get reelected on, you create that for all of these politicians, and now you have and you have power over them too. If you complete projects for them, you can also take them away. You now have created your for yourself political power too with this machine. Yeah, I think the big things in power is he knew how to be competent when he needed to be. He knew how to, you know, give people what they wanted and what they needed. Mm-hmm. It's like I need all this to get reelected. Okay. It's on your plate. It's like, okay. And he reminded people. You're part of the team. The biggest through line, like but beyond anything, the biggest through line, they talk about it on like page three, is Moses continually throughout, um, this is was his, this was his, like, it's bookended with when this, when this threat backfires, is his threat to resign his position, to resign yeah. his power. Like if someone's not getting along with him, he's like, all right, well, I can always just get out of here. I don't need all this trouble. And sometimes be doing some stupid post he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. It's like, okay, resign that post. Like, no, I'm going to resign all my posts, and then no one's going to be running your authorities. Yeah. And like everything's going to fall apart, and they probably would, and to go way ahead when he actually finally was off the page yeah. through old age, if nothing else. Yeah. But like- yeah, New York City stopped being able to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and he makes, and this in that threat, he does it, he probably issues that threat a hundred times in this book. Who knows how many times he did it in yeah. real life. It only failed twice. It failed once on page three and once on page a thousand. <laughs> yeah. And that and, finally undoes himself. And people would call his bluff. LaGuardia would say, okay, resign. And it's like, well, I didn't really mean it. It's like, okay, we'll stay on. Yeah, like, I it, lied. <laughs> it's like, it was like kind of an agreement until someone really wants to stick a knife in his back and then it, then it happens. Well, because all the politicians realized because he has created this power for himself and that the things that he does are needed by all of the politicians around him and they cannot afford to be identified with losing Moses. They cannot afford to. So let's talk about the fact it is not only kind of if you want to be LaGuardia's you know, helper, it's like, well, then you're part of one dude. Instead, he created entire systems in which everybody depended upon what he was doing, mm-hmm. which is you talk about the media. The media all loved him. Okay, that's, yeah, that's all step, of them. step one. The public, public loved, him, loved be- him because the media says like he's the good park man. Mr. Parkman, he's great. Well, and he opened like and he timed it out. He played it all. Every asset he had, he did not let it, you know, go to waste or be underappreciated. If he opened, if he opened, you know, a hundred playgrounds in a year, he would open them, you know, days apart from each other. He wouldn't do them, you know, all in one time of the year. He would do them every week. There would be a playground opening that he yeah. would be at, that some local politician could be at, that some union guy could be at, that 
LaGuardia could be at and he could cut the ribbon with the big shears. Oh, yeah. And FDR hated his guts. But he's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to open Jones Beach. I'm going to open these dams. Yep. And like FDR was like, okay, this is actually, I, I need this. Thanks. Yeah. And that was another piece of leverage that Moses has that it occurred to him that that was something that he could have leverage over people with. Do you get on the stage at the opening? Are you in the front row? Are you in the back row? Do yeah. you get to speak? Do I, you know talk smack at you during my speech. These are all little tiny levers that he had, and he turned all of them all the time. So these are people running for elections. And I guess you talk about Albany. Those are like not as prominent and a lot more divorced. And then you talk about a bunch of more people running in commissions, running in staffs, like all across the board. It's like you have to get everyone everyone on your on your side. And when the mayor is uh, loses to someone else, you need to get on the new mayor. And he was yeah. just like, he's like, oh, new mayor? It's like, I love the old mayor, but now you're my guy. I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to give you stuff. Uh, but and then, like all these commissions to commissions and committees that he just ruthlessly stacks with his guys. And, and not, mayors will come in and think, oh, can I get something done here? And then they find out that everyone on the, the, the drain committee, you know, four out of five are <laughs> Moses guys. Yeah, they're all Moses guys. And it's just, it's just incredibly... Uh, you know, ideologically, you know, conformist. You know, everybody is part of it. Some of them for they very really selfish- have an ideology. They just have <laughs> just purely stuck on power. Yes, I mean, a lot of people are cynical and shameless. You, he has people who are serving these commissions, like Tom Shanahan or something. like Oh this. yeah, and, or, or the mustache guy, just complete, just complete psychos. Yeah, he was he was a he was a park staffer. I don't think he was yeah. on any commissions, but like all yeah, these just, people, a hench, just a henchman. Yeah, and so this like this guy Tom Shanahan just he's like just this guy he just comes so gross. It's like you think of like. Like, how did this guy live? He was just a banker who's like, I want to create a big bank. And then he kind of says, okay, I'm this Moses guy, I can finance a lot of projects, get a lot of money if I get the bonds, because the bonds are like tax, like uh, tax privileged gold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and this is contrasted again with his earlier life as a reformer when he rails against these people. He rails against Tammany. He rails against shady banks and of kickbacks and this and that. And then as soon as he gets power... He realizes that the key to keeping and expanding it is to just plunge into this machine where yeah. you got you crooked. And again, going straight to the mafia, not even with, not like with barely you know a layer separating him from just the mafia. And what's incredible here is one, Tammany would be so boring. This at the beginning, like okay, you buy a million bags of cement. Oh wait, you only bought three hundred thousand, and the rest were all fake. And, yeah, and they'd be dumb about it. They put like. <laughs> They put like crimes on the invoice, and yeah. they'd be incredibly easy to catch. Yeah, and just and when you find it's like okay, fake cement. The public cares. In this, it's stuff the public could never care about because okay, let's instead have this. Instead, everybody in politics is a lawyer. Check. Uh, and, and let's say you have a job that was unrelated, but because you're on a commission, it's like okay, we'll hire for being a lawyer. You don't have to do much, but you get money. You just show up. Or you're yeah. a banker. You'll get a bunch of uh, money. You get extra, basically uh, float. On, on money you can make from this pools of people just who have to store with you due to some weird bylaw yeah, or all bonds offered for sale you know to, to this party first like the public doesn't care about that like what's being stolen they don't they don't see something being stolen yeah. it's hard to get them to care and in, again they control the media insurance commissions P- exactly PR Insur- retainers like okay <laughs> you'll help me out here's money to kind of say good things about me. And that's, Again, very forward thinking. Like, how much does this look like a 21st century political campaign? Oh, yeah. Consultants and legal fees and, you know, every 
Washington lobbying firm, you know, swarming around. But this is just city politics in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, he kind of invented that. And it's kind of this new model of what makes political machines run now. It's a bunch of people who are too dumb to breathe. And just like they show up, it's like part of the staff. It's like, okay, it's basically a charity for a bunch of inside inside politics people. And they want to keep the machine going because they're too dumb to do anything else. Yeah, and like quarter million dollar speaking deals and stuff like that. Like it's directly from, he wrote that playbook. Like in the... In the 1910s, politicians were like, yeah, like sneaking out of City Hall with bags with dollar signs on them and like yeah. getting getting sent Christmas hams by mob bosses. But now it's like, yeah, hiding all of his corruption, just completely hiding it all, hiding all of his connections. Even like it took those reporters years to find out that these these city deals, these Title I deals that are being handed out. He was hiding them so well. Yeah. And he was paying these favors to these people in such a distracted way that you couldn't find out. Unless you had an army of journalists and the willingness of people on the inside to, to you know, to squeal, which none of them were because they were all being made more powerful. And n- none of the things were like or very few of the things were technically illegal. They were just mm-hmm. awful and immoral. Uh, f- like we can say later, they got into housing and like a lot of things for housing. OK, you know, we need to uh, tear down the slums. This is part of this great program because they deserve something better. Uh, are we actually going to do it? No, but we'll. A lot of people get rich. Well, he tore down a lot of slums, that's for sure. They did, but then like, okay, uh, where are they going to live now? It's like, okay, there's some well-connected people. They run relocation services. And these people just more or less get into like just being the worst landlords in the world. Yeah, or the relocation (laughs) agency was, yeah, like an office door painted on a wall. There was no one there. Exactly, but they would start to own the buildings and like still get a lot of money. And yeah, just milk them for rent. He would sell... (laughs) He would buy whole blocks, you know, for slum clearance with city money and sell them for, you know, a fraction of value to these agencies that were supposed to redevelop them. And they just sat on them and just t- took the rents and kicked people out. Yeah. And this this is things just start, start, just started like not fixing the buildings. And this is the thing that started to actually get the the press. This goes into the late 50s by the time yeah. anyone starts to care. But the realize that it's all these people in commissions who like have these extra jobs yeah. in relocation programs and they're not doing anything, and they're actually like just clearly land speculating. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, we'll actually give you this money, uh, this this land for a song. You help us out with the job of relocating everyone, which they don't do. Yeah. Or they they move them around. the The key is, and then this, his name and the city's name is not on it because it's some it's some bunch of you know mooks in a company that's existed <laughs> for six months. Yeah. And they can't complain to the city because the city doesn't run it. So let's say I hire you to be a relocation person. You could, if you're doing the job well, what you do is, okay, you know, the city owes you these services. Let's find you an apartment. Let's get you moved in. Let's actually help you out. That's a lot of work. <laughs> That's a lot of work. And you have to have all the things that you say you're going to give to these people. Yeah. If you give a guarantee, and if it's the city, and if they're really breaking the law, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if it's through all these private companies, there's nothing that they can do. And at the last, they could just roll up and be bankrupt and be like, oh, I'm out of here. And here's something you do that's better. Which is, you do have the goal. I want, if I'm in this business, I want to actually be part of this development program, uh, buy low, sell high for some big project later, but I need to get these people out of the slum first. Okay, well, this is hard. I'll put eviction programs. And then they say, okay, you said you'd relocate me. It's like, don't bother me. Get away. It's like, and this usually, yeah. this the usually office, works. The office is open from 7 a.m. to uh, 11, 20 a.m. Yeah, and then let's say, okay, no, it's like three you, days a week. It's like someone's persistent. Like, no, you actually have to service me this way. It's like, okay. And then they take them to some building, which is like half bombed out or something. It's yeah. like, 
Or, or they show them an apartment like, this is a suitable apartment and it costs more than you can get. Yeah. What are you supposed to do at that point? And so, again, <laughs> Moses knew that every that everything he was doing was going to be a fight and he was triaging his efforts. If he was fighting a bunch of poor people, he did not. He realized he did not have to try very hard because the media did not care. The poor people had no power. They had no sway at City Hall. And he had just had complete contempt for them. And it showed with just the complete you know, cardboard cutouts of, of promises he gave to these people who were being pushed out in his, his slum clearance development. And it's funny because he not only just evicted them like nothing, he evicted people and then made other people rich through the process of evicting them, which oh, is yeah. like, that's really going the extra mile. Or kicked them out just because he could and threatened them and shoved them out. And then the buildings just sat because like yeah. the money, like he, he, he bought one, you know, got one bit of land in the Bronx and then it wasn't connected to the expressway. So he just let it sit. So this goes to the fact that uh, the highway system is part of this political machine, which means a couple things. You need to build more highways. You need to always be, you know, it doesn't matter what it takes because, you know, he doesn't care if it ruins the city. And exactly, because that's, that's, again, through the, the theme throughout this book, the takeover of the highway. The takeover of the highway and kind of secondarily to the highway is the gr- essential you know, highway development being essential for it, but Moses's finger is directly on the 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 button of highway development, highway development and suburbanization throughout the book, and strictly at the expense of public and mass transit. Yeah, as the ex- through line of the book of Moses is in Moses' ideology is yeah. that cars must be supreme and that trains will get nothing, and that the suburbs are the future. It is absolutely imprinted in his brain. Most of the people around him have no ideology or commitments outside of gaining their own power. But Moses believed, rigorously believed in the car, the highway, the suburb at the expense strictly of, of, of what came before it and what could be an alternative to it. And part of it is the fact that he wasn't particularly thoughtful about it because he thought like he was had an old style idea. It's like, oh, highway's going to work. It doesn't matter if it doesn't seem like it works. It just works. And then part of it is it just is you needs to work because you actually create a captive audience for even more graft. Yes. What is legal graft is, let's say you build more and more low-density developments out into Long Island. Like, that's going to make a lot of people rich. Oh, yeah. A lot of, you know, sub-developers rich, a lot of homeowners rich. And will it work very well? No, life's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's a miserable life where you either ride these commuter rails that suck, or you're on the highway stuck in a traffic jam. You have nothing that works, but... A lot of people make a lot of money in the time, so you you keep on milking it. And I think Robert Moses, I think he was not cynical about that. I think he really thought that cars were just, I think, I mean, his desire for power almost certainly played into it, like with the Highwaymen segment where it described the the move, the slow but deliberate move of the entirety of you know American political power, state, federal, private, public, being towards cars. And gasoline, yeah. and highways, and even down to insurance and tires and all of this stuff. And it wasn't and super, just New and suburban York property. City, cause, exactly, like because he won. He ran in both state authorities as well as city commissions and coordinators and so on. He also was the main liaison between the city, which of course New York City is the biggest city in the U.S., and yeah. the feds. He was directly responsible for helping really design the federal approach to funding highways. Yes, and he and. And again, like you look back and you're like, why did they do it like this? There's whole there's passages again and again and again throughout this book where it was like LaGuardia had reservations, you know, oh, you know, make sure Washington gets this. And he'd go to Washington and he'd say, We have LaGuardia's complete approval, give us the money. 
Um, yeah, it's just if you are the only middleman between everything, yeah. you can you can spin that. They like, just didn't call each other. Like during <laughs> yeah. the thing where FDR had was trying to coup was trying to do a coup on Moses. LaGuardia like went on a train to DC for 24 hours, and Moses smells like something's up. Like, where are you? Where are you, Fiorello? Are you trying to cause trouble? He's like, oh, I swear I wasn't in Washington causing trouble. Yeah. He just had such a grip on power. He could chase the mayor around like he was trying to grab his leash. It's it was crazy. We're talking about the good ways of like being competent, giving what they want, but he was also an incredible bully, a liar, oh, yeah. just petty, and would destroy people. Talk about ideological conformity in all of his different organizations. If anybody, some low-level guy is working his way up and challenges him, he would make sure that you are fired, you are ruined, you are blackballed for life. That you Don't never you... get a job again. <laughs> yes. And if you have kind of this kind of market share, he could do that and did it every single time. And he did it to his own brother. Yeah. There's this entire chapter about how he just absolutely, and again, for like, for some like non-specific family-related reason that, you know, that... Carol was trying to interview the brother and he was going to tell him the next day and then he dies. The brother like dies and the secret dies with him. Yeah. It's this complete mystery. Robert Moses just, he, he writes his brother out of his life and didn't. And his brother being an engineer who was looking for city employment for 30, 30, 40 years, Robert Moses absolutely, you know, forces him out. That's a, that's a fun thread in the book. It's like Shades of Pale Fire or something that the book is about Robert Moses but this thread in the background is the story of how Robert Caro started to interview Robert Moses and then got shut out. Yeah. Because you get the idea, okay, when did they start talking? When did he get some of these stories? And finding the threads of every story going out and when Robert Moses kind of caught wind. It's a very funny that it is a biography of this incredibly hostile person oh, and yeah. the sneaky methods of investigating it. Well, and the interviews that he got from, because he interviews hundreds of people, Carol interviews hundreds and hundreds of people. Like he, LaGuardia and FDR and Al Smith are dead, but he interviews dozens of people who worked directly with the, with all of those people. Like one of the main guys, like Sid Shapiro, was yeah. like a yeah. high, high level Long Island uh, you know, planner and everything. And just cynical, he was the main guy like, who talked about all like the racist stuff he did. Because yeah. he was just, uh, Carol said, of all well, he would just say it. Yeah, Sid Shapiro was like, oh, yeah, Robert Moses made the pools cold because he heard that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, uh, oh. Caro said that, of, you know, he's like 80 something now. He's, uh, Moses remains the most racist person he's ever met in his life. Just like he would just like not even shut it off, just go out and just rant about Puerto Ricans. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, well, and you wonder all these hundreds of people that he talked to in 1974, like they would not have shared anywhere close to. What they shared with him in 19, uh, well, again, he interviewed over a long time, but through the 60s and 70s when Moses' power was over, they wouldn't have shared any of those anecdotes back in the 50s. They, yeah. they absolutely would not, have, would not have. They were only going to do it when Moses had left power. So sideline stuff he did to get stuff done. You know, he would lie about, oh, I have the funds. And yes. then he would just like run out of money and like, okay, oh, I got the bridge half done. Could you give me more money? Yeah. <laughs> and he did this like dozens of times and like no one would ever call him out because you, if you said like, hey, uh, hey, 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 Bob, every time you say it, it's going to cost this much, it's always twice that. He's like, yeah. how dare you? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to beat your ass. <laughs> yeah. And he would go to, you know, put it out in the newspapers like, oh, so-and-so counselor has a problem with me. Well, yeah, he's going to lose you this big this big new highway, and he's going to lose you $100 billion, and it's all his fault. Okay, I'm canceling the highway, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he would do it, and he would he would do it every single time. And let's say he wants something to get done, but there's, like, all these different, uh, you know, stakeholders who, like, like, run, like, one of these things, they ran a ferry service, 
and he would just go in and just demolish their ferry service. And yeah. like the next day, they show up. It's like, okay, our building is gone. It's like, oh yeah, I, I tore down, I tore down your your building. It's comic book <laughs> villain stuff. You descend, yeah. yeah, park department, park park department yeah. henchmen. You know, in their little park department uniforms, or you know, par, you know, Long Island Park State Troopers or whatever, down and just yeah, intimidate people. You know, come onto the land with guns to let the surveyors in and yeah. You're short, you're short of breaking people's kneecaps, but... And this is part of the whole lib thing of what eventually got him undone. Is like this whole book is about what got him undone is a journalist finally you know, caught wind and really started to call him out and the public turned against him, which still didn't undo him. But one of the biggest things is... Well, first the public turned against him in the Tavern on the Green fight. Yes. Because he did something just again. He was himself. This is him. This is no different than the Robert Moses of the 20s. Well, and this is, I think, important to say... Media, if you are doing some garbage with some fairy, no one's going to be capturing it. If there is some reporting in the New York Times, he can say Moses, like, sink the story. You know, yeah. you go to like every paper and say, like, you know, fairies are obsolete. We need bridges. We need this. Yeah. We need that. So the first time there was a major public outcry was the fact something was happening right in the middle of Central Park next to the heart of the media empire in the world, yeah. which is incredibly photogenic, being done by a bunch of Upper West Side intellectual oh, adjacent yeah. folks. Mm-hmm. So for the first time yeah, he ever- he tried to knock down trees in Central Park. Well, it was like a children's playground. The green. Yeah, the yeah. children's playground. Ooh, Shakespeare in the park. He had been doing this- for 30, 40 years, yeah. he had been this person who had, you know, destroyed hundreds of thousands of people's lives, you know, set the country irreversibly on the path towards urban and transportation chaos. But he knocked down the favorite trees of a couple of libs. And that's yeah. really what did it. And this is the thing, too, around like here. It's like, it's like we fought the highways. Like it's like the line of Jane Jacobs to Calvin Welch and all these different like hippies who all, you know, just it's like we stop them. It's like. Well, you kind of stopped them because you yourselves have immense privilege, but every And it was time, your house. You didn't step yes. up when it was the Cross Bronx Expressway. You stepped up when it would have been the, you know, the cute village. Yes, exactly. And you see this, like this is, oh, I was talking about in Portland, like they stopped a highway and then they built it across the river in uh, a minority neighborhood. It's like, yep. great job, guys. Good job, Libs. <laughs> You saved your neighborhood. Great job. Mm -hmm. Uh, So eventually, uh, a lot of the major journalistic outlets start to turn against them. uh, And it is kind of interesting. You know, at first, a newspaper that does not exist with the the Telegraph and a newspaper that's now a joke, the New York Post, are the first ones to turn against them. Yeah, they're the only ones who actually listen to the Cross Bronx people. Because the Post actually, I think, just more or less didn't like them. And that's the thing, too. You need powerful media people to yes. do this. We, well, and there were 14 influential newspapers or whatever, yeah. run by people who didn't all go to the same dinners, run by people who all you know weren't in the same extended inbred family, and yeah. who could actually take opposing opinions to each other, and then can stir up the kind of frenzy that got everyone on the kick that Moses was bad. It is interesting that now, like, how do people, because like then, you print a bunch of stories, now the public knows. No one reads the newspaper now. Absolutely not. Everyone yeah. reads a bunch of uh, lunatics on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> so, yeah. like, and the people that people think are good, there's no budging them on the people that think they're good. If someone thinks someone is bad, there's no going to be no budging them to make them think they're good. Yeah, you can. And try- that is that is extent. I don't know if it's because of the newspapers or if the newspapers are because the people are mentally ill. It's probably because it's it's probably two ways. That's how people have become now. But I mean, when you're talking about like housing with normies. What is their source of information for stuff? Because I like remember hearing someone who was talking about Cupertino and Valco. It's just like, oh yeah, I heard there's corruption. It's like you heard it through like some weird post in 
Facebook or something. Or next door. Or next door. It's, it's Or meeting in person with people that share their material interests. Talking yeah. on next door, talking in their homeowners, your uh, clubs or whatever, talking about, oh, this this shall not stand. Or listen to weird podcasts. Yes. Or or talking on you know, complaining on Twitter with people you you know people who are the wrong kind of socialist or people who are the wrong kind of urban lefty. And they're jumping in each other's mentions and just kind of trying to control the narrative and finding it's it's a we it's so different. Like if 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 the housing discourse was happening fifty years ago, everyone like would either be a journalist or probably not and be trying to f- jockey up for position covering scoops and major in like the 14 papers. Now everyone's an amateur journalist who's just not shutting up on online media. And looking for things to support the viewpoint that they already had. I mean, I, I do that. I, I love supporting my viewpoint. I think it's great. Yeah, I never do that. Uh, but it <laughs> sounds interesting. I should try it. Um, yeah, it's uh, so eventually, and then, you know, a lot of things happen. He resigns a bunch of posts in order to uh, pursue the 1964 World's Fair. So he leaves the oh, city posts. A lot of stuff in the mean, yeah, a lot of stuff in the meantime, including building hundreds of miles of highway and bridges and expressways and making the UN uh, yes, happen. Bringing making the UN in because he knew a couple of rich guys and he just had the tenacity to, to, and the luck and the connections to shove through, you know, New York's most. And again, failing in only a couple of ways, like failing the battery bridge fight, only failing a couple of these things, but mostly getting exactly what he wants from exactly who he wants, you know, failing only when, you know, he ruffles the feathers of, you know, the libs who like their, who like Battery Park or whatever. Yeah. So uh, then eventually, you know, he he leaves that the uh, new, uh, there's a new arrogant uh, governor, Nelson Rockefeller, who really says, I'm going to actually call your bluff, get you kicked out of all these things. He's stuck with just Triborough at this point. Yeah. And then eventually he gets uh, kicked out. Well, do you want to talk about the World's Fair? Is it, I mean, I think the long, yeah, why don't you, why don't you mention what you want to Yeah, I mean, the way I kind of see that and how Carol kind of portrays it is, is this is after he has, you know, lost two, you know, high-profile skirmishes around the Tavern on the Green thing in Central Park where... The media finds out basically that he sucks and chases him around for it, and he kind of has to give up. And then around one of his lackeys, uh, one of Robert Moses Park Commission, you know, lackeys, this psycho, wants to shut down Shakespeare in the park, yeah. being run by this, you know, idealistic young Shakespeare company director who, you know, has communist leanings and was and was, you know, McCarthy'd. And Moses just refuses to, you know, you know, fight against this guy who censured him and basically fights to the bitter end for almost no reason and just gets ripped apart in the press uh, over Shakespeare in the park just well, because he's a stubborn guy. And this, and we talk about the psycho who ran the parks uh, under him, and he says, like, housing, he was kind of hands-off, yeah. but he let a lot of absolute monsters yeah. work under him. Yeah, and he, and the through line under this as well, too, is that there's this Title I um, developments, like Title I of the Federal Housing Act, uh, slum clearance, building public housing, essentially. Moses gets into this just because he sees... You know, sees a niche he can fill and another space he can occupy to get more power. And he delegates the entire thing and it's completely crooked, like everything we were saying earlier. And so, yeah, to the World's Fair, Title One is brewing as, you know, a, as a big and wide reaching scandal. He's had these two skirmishes that he's lost. Well, and, and this is introduced now saying he, this is, because takes a step back. This is actually for, since the 20s, he's had this long game on making his version of Central Park which would be uh, Flushing Meadows, mm-hmm. so which was a, like an ash dump in the 20s. Oh, yeah. It was the ash dump in The Great Gatsby, yeah. the Valley of Ashes. It was, it was, yeah, hell on earth like so many places in New York, and he just he wiped it clean completely. He fought for every buck to get the land. 
And he, he took two World's Fairs because the yes. first one was held there in 39 and it kind of cleaned it up and he needed a second World's Fair to finish the job. And uh, just completely like money grabs and just absolutely shamelessly promising that it would make a ton of money and it would bring the, the wonderful eye of the world onto the city saying everything he needed to, getting every buck he could. It's funny because like it's it is interesting. It was the only time kind of was a private businessman was running this World Fair in a way. And, uh, you know, in other stuff, he kind of guaranteed money, he can run out of funds, gets more funds, he knows how to play the system. But he says, okay, the key in the World's Fair in 64 is I'm going to make a lot of money and use the profit to make the park great. Mm-hmm. And instead, he, like, lost 80% of the money yeah. going into it. And use the promise of profit to try and juice people. Yeah. and He, he, just, was, he was grifting people. He's kind of like, okay, I can use the brand of World Fair and just kind of underdeliver, and then, you know, I will kind of t- skim off the top. I can just kind of squeeze everybody. And he pretty much delegated the entire thing, too. Like, he completely phoned it in. He went to... You know, Europe to try and he should, what he should have done was be diplomatic about getting the European. There were no European countries. We won. There was one European country. It was Franco's Spain. Yeah. Went to the 1964 World's Fair. That was because he went to France and was rude to some people. And they were like, absolutely not. Get out of here. But he's like, okay, someone else. He did not have it. You can go to a private company and say, okay, you can be Italy. Okay, yeah. you can be Germany. It's like, that's that's kind of weird. Yeah. A bunch of like, yeah, complete like tin pot scam artists from around the United States was like, yeah, let's make the uh, Italy pavilion. Uh, put up some, yeah, put up some spaghetti stands, whatever. I don't know. Is uh, is Flushing Meadows, like, it seems like, it, like, I, I've been through there once. It seems like it's fine, but, like, I, what's it famous for? I know the World's Fair for... It's the World's Fair for the Unisphere. For the Unisphere. I remember, like, that's where uh, Disney premiered a lot of stuff at the World's Fair. So it's like... Yeah. Uh, but then, like, Men in Black, it's like, it, like, makes it look like it's actually completely... Uh, you know, just just uh, left to rot. I don't and in know. In the Simpsons episode where Homer has to go to the bathroom, he sees a bus going to Flushing Meadows. He mm. imagines it as a uh, yeah. as a meadow full of toilets where he can. Yeah, and they did they did not rename it Robert Moses Park, uh, mm-hmm. which is implied that's what he wanted. This is where uh, Robert Carroll got on the scene for Newsday. He started covering the World's Fair yeah. uh, grift. Uh, so that's why it takes probably more of the book than I think it maybe has to, but it's his thing. So uh, then he, you know, he's. Well, and it was where Robert Moses, yeah, just completely. Just has no idealism, has no public benefit, is completely cheap, is completely, you know, lying, you know, getting all this attention only to just completely fall on his face and disappoint people. It's funny because he's being a private businessman uh, and just failing as opposed to the fact that he was kind of just stealing from the public most of his life, which yeah. is how he's able to kind of keep this gambit going. Mm-hmm. Uh, he And all throughout the book, his authority, you know, just keeps getting more and more money because it's bringing in all this toll money. Yeah. And the pertinent authorities, they were designed to be dissolved when the bridge had been paid off. And then the city would put no tolls on the bridges. And then, the, but like Robert, what the city should have done is keep tolls on the bridges and fold the money back into mass transit. Instead, they got the worst of both worlds where the money was, you know, kept by high tolls and folded back into Robert Moses' own project, which were more bridges. It's, it's funny because they were so close to optimal congestion pricing. Yeah. You know, which is like you have a bunch of bridges because that is an argument which I think is understated, uh, which is people consider we should have tolls on bridges to pay for the bridges. And someone who believes in congestion pricing says, no, you have it to ration the uh, to ration the traffic. It doesn't matter if it's an old bridge or a new bridge. Yeah. And parking should be expensive for that reason as well. Yeah. Uh, so instead. Yeah, Robert Moses built parking garages that brought in a fortune in income and it didn't go into the city. Went into building more highways, highways that you could use for free, but uh, bridges that you could that had a toll to pay for more bridges and highways. His growth machine does not work 
if the money makes things better, but it works if the money gets pumped back into his systems. And in fact, if you underfund the subways, good. You have more captive audience to pay yeah. for your tolls. And he said it again, in in no you know, in completely explicit terms, he sold every new bridge as like like next to the Throg's Neck and the Whitestone or whatever, he built three bridges, each one being sold, and like this will alleviate the congestion on the old bridge. Yeah. And every time it actually got worse. So uh, he has one uh, commission left or authority left, which is the Triborough. After he basically you know, sh- shoots himself in the foot, you know, messing around with Nelson Rockefeller yeah. and playing the, oh, I'm going to resign thing. And Rockefeller's like, okay. Yeah. New York City now gets a mayor who runs on a Robert Moses Sucks campaign. Yeah. And his big thing is, Lindsay. okay. Yeah, Lindsay. And he says, okay, let's actually have Triborough pay for the subways and we'll share funds. He's like, yeah. and, uh, and Moses says, actually, you legally can't do it. <laughs> uh, because the, the the contracts are guaranteed to be paid from his triborough funds. Yeah, and, and like you, this is the ninth round, and he is hurting. He is like he has been beaten up. He's lost a lot of his positions, but he fights the mayor. He holds his ground. He knows what's in the law. He's fighting he, the mayor and the governance at the same he time. Humili- and he 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 does his best to fight and humiliate them. And the only reason he's actually taken out of his last position is because the bonds that would challenge him and sue him if they actually, or sue the city. The bondholder, yeah. The yeah. bondholder. It's consolidated by Chase Manhattan Bank, which is run by David Rockefeller. Yeah. Which is, so it's just kind of like, okay, it's like, let's not fight this. And uh, so that was our two-minute recap. Care, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, my goodness. So I think there's a lot to look at here, which is what didn't work, uh, which is kind of he created a machine of growth which did bad stuff. He loved cars. He loved highways. They didn't actually make life better. (laughs) And And he never drove. Again, another wonderful thing that Caro touches on a million times in the book. Robert Moses, yeah, maybe to the best of his knowledge, he drove a car once or twice in his life. He was chauffeured everywhere. Yeah. He never knew what it was like to wait in a traffic jam his entire life. He never drove a car. But he he created a car-based pyramid scheme, which eventually went bust yeah. when you reached maximum congestion. Mm-hmm. It was a pyramid scheme. That's a very that's a good way of explaining it. Yeah, and, and that's that's where you hit the end of the road, as it were, which yeah. is when every road is a traffic jam all day long, yeah. and you have nowhere to go from there. Because there's his own personal and political gain doing it in other countries, too. Yeah, he's, he's, he's exported it everywhere. Like through Nelson's personal colony in Venezuela, even like fighting him in in New York State, uh, Nelson Rockefeller is like, oh, I know, yeah, like we're we're in agreement on this, you know, come down to Venezuela, down to my basically my colony, um, owned by me and the bank, and build some nice highways there in Venezuela. How about that? So here's one thing I'd say that it lets you understand, like when you're doing public projects, <laughs> the way this is done, which. Through land acquisition and the idea that you grease the wheels through land accrual in the long term and through the kind of dead weight of actually profiting off of congestion, it's uh, it's a lot of what you would want to see is something more like a just-in-time system. You want to create a public project, you get the land, you build on it, and that's the end of the story. Uh, he he rails against Moses in the book. Or the city proactively spends a ton of its surplus money on land, yeah. buys more land than it needs to when it's building a public work, yeah. so you can expand it in the future, having a like but, expanding but they, they public ownership. They never do that. So they say, like, oh, if you made a little bit wider, we could have mass transit going through the middle of this highway. But it's like, okay, it's not worth an extra 3%. Mm-hmm. So instead, it would cost... 200% more now to make that happen. Well, Moses had no problem spending way too much money on something. He was ideologically and personally opposed to mass transit, I think. Well, you yeah. can go into around the interests as well of the car that forced that, but that's something, again, throughout the book that Carol makes mercilessly clear. 
is that Moses spent his entire career, you know, starving out mass transit. And yeah. even when they could have coexisted, could and should have coexisted um, to actually move people around, he was just absolutely gave not an inch to it because that's something he really believed in, was yeah. giving nothing to mass transit. Yeah, I think you can look at, you know, cynically that he did it for his own profit, but I think he did have big livable California mindset, mm -hmm. which is he wanted the fact that his ideal way of living is you live on with a nice lawn. Uh, I pulled this up from the Atlantic 1961, Our City's Dead by Robert Moses. Uh, it's a cool quote. The prosperous suburbanite is as proud of his ranch home as the owner of the most gracious villa in Tuscany. In the suburbs, the hiker finds the long brown path leading wherever he chooses, by day in filtered sunlight or by evening in the midst of the rhythmic orchestration of tree frogs. The little identical suburban boxes of average people, which differ only in colon planting, represent a measure of success unheard of by hundreds of millions in other continents. Which is, if you believe you're not really living unless you're living like a suburb, <laughs> suburban living, it's like... Mission accomplished. Yeah, it's a reduction of, of achievement and satisfaction in society to, you have a you know a plot of land. You have some dirt. You're not living in an apartment. Yeah, like that is it's reducing life, city life, our common project to that, and if your maximum satisfaction to that pure suburban mindset. And it's way a, far in, in advance of what any of these these schmucks on Twitter are doing. And it's. I mean, I think what is funny and weird is like if you want to go out in the middle of nowhere and subdivide and build a bunch of houses, go to town. There's so much land. Don't do it five minutes away from Manhattan. Like that's, <laughs> that's the thing that's crazy. Uh, and yeah, so nothing is nothing is future proof. Everything is basically locked up. One big thread too is saying that he hated buses going around so much that he made sure all of the bridges in Long Island would not allow buses to go through. That is the the, the famous Robert Mosesism. Yeah. And again, he didn't he get a direct Sid Shapiro quote about this? Like, yeah, Moses made sure to make the bridges so low that buses couldn't go underneath them. Yeah, Sid loved it. Yeah, uh, he was completely like, yeah, he did it, and it was cool. And like, yeah, oh I was God. looking up to see like, oh, how many of these bridges are still around today? And like, most of them. <laughs> most of them, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, like the one kind of leftist pro-growth argument you can make for highways is that they are much more flexible and better for shipping industrial goods than trains are. They're much more efficient. They take up, you know, they're, they're a lot faster, blah, blah, blah. That trucking goods around is much flexible and better for growth than, than trains are. He also barred trucks from his parkways and made, yeah. the, made the bridges too short for trucks and lobbied against any kind of industry on Long Island. Like, he went a step beyond these... Um, like like a suburbanite might now in 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 California, who would be okay with offices, you know, because brings in that brings in that sales tax, brings in that money. Moses was like, no, he was opposed to industry because he thought Long Island should be residential only. And it's funny too, because like it's clear this is also from the Atlantic article. He's talking about uh, critics of the cities, which are we're going to get this in a second. People like Lewis Mumford were kind of mm -hmm. saying like they're just left pastoralists, like. Cities shouldn't exist. Stop the Manhattanization of Manhattan. Yeah, uh, bird brains. <laughs> uh, what do the critics of cities offer as a substitute for the highly taxed central city core, which supports the surrounding quieter, less densely settled, and less exploited segments of the municipal pie? Have they an alternative to real estate taxes? So he is <laughs> saying actually a key, like New York works because you have Manhattan subsidized suburban Long Island people and, and so on. Uh, which is kind of was that the case? Was the money coming from Manhattan to pay for? Oh, Manhattan is an exporter to Albany, and then Albany supports everything but Manhattan. So, yeah, pretty like, much. So I think yeah. It's, and then all the rich real estate taxes out there go to Albany and do not come back. 
By the way, this is something which I don't know, like, if it's, like, an East Coast, West Coast thing. I never hear real estate taxes as opposed to property taxes. What's up with that? Uh, it might just be a word. I don't know. Yeah, it also has a pretty old paper. I really I really don't know. Yeah, it seems like it just, they, it's just that mid-century thing. Real estate taxes was more common. Now we say property taxes. I'd rather say real estate because it's clear that you're part of a financialized process and it's not like you're... Well, maybe to those who you really cared about real estate taxes, like... It may have been to you know big big landholders, big commercial and mixed use landholders. Whereas out in California, it's mostly small small holders, single family single family home holders. Whereas you might mostly have apartments and renters out in the more dense East Coast cities. Yeah, um, and that might be a source of it, but I'm really not sure. I can say. And this goes to uh, this is I think talking about real estate taxes here in the Henry George program. I think it's good to underline it. Uh, it is worth mentioning that so much of how stuff gets paid for, they had to determine through revenue uh, schemes. They did it largely through bonds being paid through usage on highways. But in 1949 or so, uh, new Mayor Dwyer needed to kind of uh, correct the shortfall in budget for public works. Mm. And uh, Moses says, okay, I have a system for making this happen. <laughs> uh, and like one option is you can make real estate taxes higher. Uh, and he was very much against that. And here's a quote. Uh, Moses' proposal was a fiscal codification of his philosophy and his lesser personal power. Since a greater proportion of the poorer classes rather than upper rode the subways, doubling the fare was a financial burden that would fall heaviest on those cities' people least able to bear it. Moses' taxing proposals left real estate taxes unraised and income taxes unmentioned, those being taxes which would adversely affect big real estate holders and the city's wealthier citizens, whose welfare Moses equated with the welfare of society. Uh, and then they increased sales taxes and, and all sorts of regressive taxes. Instead. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, this is mission accomplished. This is this is system working as designed. Uh, it's a way of kind of making sure the upper classes do not get affected for the cost of public works that we see. And yeah. it's actually the nice side benefit of the fact that the city had a debt ceiling. And by increasing the subway fare, it became self-financing, which allowed them to kind of open up the... It was like just all these stupid little bylaws can have huge repercussions in reality. One of the places the city's hands are tied and the places where an authorities would not be or in places where since the city does not have control over the authority, they can't close the loop on the exp the costs and and um, revenue that the cars and highways and tolls were bringing in. Um, they did not have the power of law. The, this, you know, when it when it came out, arbitrary and shakily written and you know mo and written in a very motivated way all of these laws all these authorities that tied the city up and left the power where it was intended to be in the hands of Moses's authorities and i think it's worth mentioning housing crises they had a housing crisis post world war 2 yeah uh they did not do a good job of actually addressing it <laughs> no they really they really did not uh they here, talked a lot about it but here's something i find interesting is uh New York City uh, facing another uh, housing crisis post-World War I uh, dealt with it in a way that was not mentioned in the book, but I'm reading this, uh, this Mason Gaffney piece, New Life in Old Cities, uh, the Al Smith Act. The mm. Al Smith Act, put, put through legislature and signed in 1921, gave a 10-year exemption to improvements on 
uh, on on real estate. Exemption from property taxes? Yes. So the improvements would not be. The land would be. This was actually pushed directly through Georgist organizations through New York City, which had more political power at the time. And, uh, you know, if you talk about all this stuff, this book is about— Because that is a Georgist act. You are improving the the land and you are, say, and it's kind of a mechanism to force— you know, it's not it's not bringing the tax on the value of the plot to perfectly to what the market would be, blah blah blah. But you're trying to disconnect improvement from taxing the value of the baseland. That's kind of what that does. Yes, uh, and it's what is funny is uh, so much of the book is about all these incredibly visible, energetic actions to do not enough. Whereas, <laughs> like this act, uh, there's this paper I'm, I'm you know, reading right here, which is talking about just how effective it was at creating an incredible amount of housing in the, exactly when they needed it in a way that was so invisible <laughs> that yeah, like, yeah. you don't even mention it. You know, it's kind of you know who feeds New York. It's yeah. like stuff happens invisibly. If if Robert Moses was in charge of feeding New York, there'd be a massive famine, and then a ton of people get rich through it. <laughs> but instead of uh, I mean, it's just you have to actually look at what actually is going to be effective here. Uh, and I think that's kind of the tr- the second tragedy is we saw, I think, I would say the, f- the framing of the book being the Tammany machine being replaced with the Moses Highway machine, which eventually you know ran out of steam, replaced with kind of Lindsay through Coke through Giuliani. Yeah, through- Lindsay, who they, who Carol, like, come unambiguously pants as like a moron yeah like carol yeah he's a pretty carol he, if he doesn't say it himself he says it through interviews with people it's like yeah Lindsay was a you know yeah pretty boy moron yeah and Lindsay says okay we're like you know now that we have funds for the subways second avenue subway gonna be starting in just a couple of any years. day now folks yeah it's the early 60s any day now folks yeah and then the book is like okay it might open pretty soon uh in you know just open 2017 you know, so nothing is moving at the time that people need it to. Well, and to be fair, you know, in the in the early to mid '60s, like the post-war growth is, you know, going to be over soon. Inflation is beginning. Labor troubles are getting more serious. You know, all of the all the you know people like to pretend you know politics started in the 1960s, but things were going to start really changing then. And you know, even if Lindsay wanted things to change. It doesn't seem like he really, really wanted to or was willing to work with Moses' methods, but the deck was stacked against him to get anything done at that time. But so it was stacked against Moses, too. He built highways during the Depression. Well, if it's stacked against you, maybe the goal should be structural change, which will get this, this, the, the deck unstacked against yeah. you. And no one is doing that. And I think this is the big issue of Moses. I think you have to look at why everything was bad and wrong, but then say— what are the good alternatives? Yes. What is a what is a just and righteous and equitable way to apply public power and money to solve this problem? And you look at all of his enemies, everybody from Gene Jacobs, Lewis Mumford, Robert Caro himself, what are their good alternatives? They're kind of, don't build the highways. Don't do this. There is no real sensible system of how they say that we should yeah, actually- Yeah, the well-meaning transit wonks. Like, uh, uh, yeah, well, highways are fine, Mr. Moses, but can you just please put a line of uh, a line of transit through the center? He's like, no, get yeah. out of here. No, go, we'll run another study, okay? And yeah, like all the, the people, like the, like the again, the urbanist wonks challenging him. Like around the time of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel fight, like well, we will commission a study and we'll get we'll get the facts to City Hall, and it meant nothing. Yeah, the fact the facts meant nothing without a vision and without power. 
and just th- the facts and nothing. And this is something uh, Alex Shaffron, uh, the road resegregation yeah. author, uh, has said is like what we need is a new growth machine. Yes, and a new I, growth machine and a new vision. Yes, and I think that is what we have. You can say this growth machine died, and no one has had anything that has worked to replace the yeah. suburban sprawl model, which we continue to. Just the completely like stunted growth with. All of the economic gains going to Silicon Valley top people. Yeah. None of it like, you know, going to the high and the highest paid workers and homeowners and none of it going to anybody else. Like your reward for getting to participate in the growth machine that is the tech economy yeah. is a two hours each way drive from Concord. That's and, your reward. And not to say that everything about it is, is hunky dory, but if you look at something which is a growth machine, which actually seems to work, look at the Singapore Hong Kong model of mm. value capture through uh, land value accrual, and they actually and yeah, funding of mass transit through through <laughs> just art to through unilaterally raising property taxes and reassessing, which goes directly back into because that's the thing. If you build the subway better, it goes to landowners, and mm-hmm. if that's the end of the story, it's like okay, let's not make the subway better. But if instead you create a system to recapture the value of land value increase to the subway, you can pour it back in, and you have a virtuous cycle of making your infrastructure better, which yeah. goes into higher land values, which goes into making your infrastructure better. And that's a growth machine, which we see in the places that do it, works like gangbusters. Yeah, well, and Caro does not have a muscular vision of how this could really be fleshed out throughout the city. But like, compared to like, if um, some like New York, if like some New York Times favorite or some some like public intellectual favorite wrote a book like this yeah. about like the faults of Robert Moses and the faults of like car-based society, their their vision, their critique would not be anywhere near as you know strong and con- and full of conviction as Caro's, as weak as Caro's is, because he does he doesn't propose something, but he does at least like. He does say it right out there. We the same. The organization does not have the ability to capture, you know, the impact and money from highways yeah. and plow it back. He advocates vigorously plow it back into mass transit. Yeah, he's just like you do the math. You need mass transit for mm-hmm. better or for worse. You need it. Build it. He even call he he unambiguously calls the suburbs awful. Suburban culture awful. Yeah, you know, walking necessary, driving being stuck in traffic humiliating. <laughs> Whereas some of the, these centrist, you know, types are like, oh, I like driving my big car. They have no brains. They have no vision, Com- even compared to Caro, whose vision is not that strong, but miles stronger than any 21st century critique. He's descriptive and not completely prescriptive, but he, I, I think... He's he- got more prescriptions than any, <laughs> you know, than any writer who would write a, you know, who would write a critique oh, yeah. like this now. Well, the any Atlantic piece jumps, or whatever. Jumps out. And I yeah. think, yeah. You'd look at the livable California. Or even these, a lot of left urbanists. Yeah, they say, they say, no, don't do this, don't do this, but how do you actually do something better? And I think one thing, if there is the, uh, you know, maybe one bad takeaway from other people who oppose Moses saying, what we need is everything being strictly democratized, you know, local control spun down. And this is like one of like Finkelstein, the planning commission, Ugh. his big thing is like, we need more local control and different things for the city plan. And I'm saying it's like, okay, you're opposed, nice courageous stance against Moses, but I really don't think local control is, you know, the the panacea you need <laughs> because I've seen a lot of it around here. It's, it's kind of bad. Uh, well, and, and again, like in these situations where like, like in the Cross Bronx Expressway fight, when like some local councilman finds out, oh, things are actually going pretty wrong. People are really being hurt here. I'm going to use my influence to stand up, blah, blah, blah. Even if a, a train was being built and you had to have condemnations, you had to have this and that, you had people being disgruntled. If someone building the trains did not have Robert Moses' power and, and 
you know, willingness to follow through and ability to squash dissenting voices, the trains would also not get built. Yeah. I think that's a huge reason why trains don't get built, because one person can speak up, you can, you know, flex your local control, and then it doesn't happen. You, you don't have this ability to drive through it. To make stuff happen for public projects, you need land acquisition. Yes. And Robert Moses did it in the most break-a-few-eggs way. And you need to ignore what locals say. Yeah, I mean, you he need was, to ignore it. I mean, he knew how to play the system, which is if in Manhattan there's some well-connected guy who owns real estate, don't touch his land or actually build it if it'll improve the land. Yeah. But like, you know, make sure you only hurt the the, the unimportant people. Yeah, and that's that's how you make it happen. The, what are the alternatives? The people in the Cross Bronx in the one mile section want to move it to the top of a park because. Who speaks for the trees? Uh, but it's, I mean, you can just make it happen. And that's the kind of base thing. There is no kind of sense of how you can do infill development equitably. And I yeah. think the way you would do it is just in time land acquisition through land taxes, which fall in proportion to how much land holdings you have. So if you actually are a major landowner, you pay your fair share as opposed to a system in which you are actually the privileged oh, yeah. the feudal lords of an area. Well, and, and again, the, and a system that gets that done needs the power that Robert Moses has. It needs that power. Um, what he did wrong was building highways through poor neighborhoods. It, with that power, what he could have done right was build trains through rich neighborhoods. And all of the power that he had over the media and the and, and even, maybe even down to the mafia would have been necessary to make that good vision. It was the fact that he was building the wrong things. Yeah. Not that he you know, ran through building projects, but he ran through the wrong kinds of building projects. I mean, he produced a lot of stuff, but the thing is he was working in a zero-sum field in which some people lose and some people win, and he made sure that the powerful people won and the, and the poor people lost. Yeah, if he was building a website, something that was like some non-zero-sum <laughs> thing, <laughs> I'd say he probably could have gone to town. He wouldn't hurt anybody. But instead, in the field of land acquisition, you hurt a lot of people, mm-hmm. and that's it's it's pretty bad. Uh, but you talk about like he, here he is in uh, this is his uh, document he r- ranted back at Caro about this. Uh, he says his official rejoinder to the yeah, uh, power it's broker. Pr- pretty funny stuff. Actually, he not not the whole book. He read the New Yorker, which is about a fourth of the book published published in four different uh, four different issues. Uh, Moses says. The current fiction is that any overnight ersatz, bagel and locks, boardwalk merchant, any down-to-earth commenter or barfly, any busy housewife who gets her expertise from newspapers, television, radio, and telephone is ipso facto endowed to plan in detail a huge metropolitan arterial complex good for a century. Uh, In the absence of prompt decisions by experts, no work, no payrolls, no arts, no parks, no nothing will move. Uh, Which, I mean, that is a good description of what the status quo has been in California for the last... (laughs) Yeah, uh, half half a century, which is when you do say, okay, don't do it the the bad way, the Moses way. Let's do it the bottom up democracy way. It doesn't happen. Which is a bunch of you know locks and bagel white collar suburbanites going, oh, why don't you make the building lower? How about that, please? Yeah, it, so, it literally is that. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, how about yeah? How about planning? How about planning as you run BART out to the Central Valley so they don't have to live here? That is their bird brained <laughs> ideas. It's literally true. Yeah, I, I was just the other morning. Yeah, what about what about the Hyperloop? What about the to the Boring Company? It's child minded, yeah, child minded white collar, yeah, bird brains planning out the you're doing the planning for a metropolitan area. They have no idea what reality is. I was, I was it's talking, true. I was talking to a guy at the, the Coverly Center in Palo Alto just yesterday oh, morning God. at the, at the uh, library book sale because mm-hmm. they're redeveloping that and saying it's like, oh, well, they're doing this, and I 
talked about the update in the city council, and she's like, you know, I heard in Fremont uh, they're building, a, they're trying to build a six-story structure there <gasps> with with no parking because it's near bars. Like oh. that's ridiculous. What if you need to drive to the dentist? It's, it's, it's like it's like why are you upset that people are voluntarily going to live in a place without people a car in other towns? And then he says like, oh, what if instead of uh, building more here, what if we build in the Central Valley? Yes. <laughs> it's like yes, it, it's that's the, I mean like you one is it is just wishful thinking, and two is it doesn't understand. I think all of the different costs of infrastructure, and cynically, it doesn't understand how dependent the pyramid scheme of the Bay Area yes. homeownership stagnation is dependent upon yes. this misery we're in. Oh, yeah. And very practically, yeah, this doesn't cost me. I, th- I think it should cost everybody else, in fact. Yeah. Um, and yeah, hats off to the... Um, to the East Bay and like the lower, like the lower East Bay cities that are just building, that are just building housing, that are just you know, bless them, yeah, building only ones building BART stations, only ones building housing, and they're just, they're just fighting in this this horrible system. And they're the ones actually you know building housing at a decent clip. Well, you're describing more or less kind of the sprawl system, which is. You know, oh, but God, like it's infill. Like Fremont is already filled up. They're sure. they're they're the city's doing infill. San Jose, Fremont. That's I mean, it's yeah. not the best kind. It's Com- not all compared, zero parked. Yeah, like a lot of it's like Santana Rope crap. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but bless them because they're they're, they're, pay, they're paying dearly for it and their budgets are razor thin. Yeah, they're 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 they're, they're the best of the bunch. Although I think it's not a real sense of a sustainable growth machine that is yeah. actually going to build to the extent you yeah, need. Because it has no regional, state, or federal support. All the money's coming from locally. They can't like it needs to be bigger than just you know Fremont trying its hardest. Yeah. So uh, that that is basically all I got about talking about <laughs> talking about the power broker. Um, it's it's. Uh, Great book. I mean, I think necessary book. I should have read it a while ago, uh, but doing this, uh, I was looking for for a used copy for for like over a year, and then bought a copy to do this episode. Uh, it's. Uh, do, do you think we 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 squeezed every bit of wisdom out of it? Oh, I mean, there's those. You could just go. Well, I think I think we covered in breadth, certainly, and in decent depth, a lot of the things that you know. Made me think, made me mad. Applied to our current situation. Applied to you know politics in general, and all the, the there's just so much great New York history stuff. A lot of like the 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 parts where he goes really from numbers and figures into narrative. Yeah, like that when like and he, like this this like uh like this this finishing up this this uh is denouement the right word? Sure, like, go for it. Crescendo <laughs> parts where. Um, like when the Henry Hudson Parkway opens and it's beautiful and terrible all at the same time. Oh, he's an engaging rider. And when the World's Fair like really builds up and then absolutely goes to crap and then keeps building. I love the, the, the RM chapter talking about yes. how he wined and dined people who would kind of just be, if you're anywhere in the system, you are Robert Moses royalty. Mm-hmm. Show up, you're going to Jones Beach. Guy yep. Lombardo is going to serenade you. At, yep. And like it's like this, and like you'll have this nice meal, and like and this all this the uniformed all... footman is going to bring your kid like <laughs> so you're going to bring your kid like a coke and a hot dog. Carol says he actually got this treatment. Sid Shapiro has set it up for him, and like wow, that's so like it's just incredible yeah. the kind of graft. It kind of reminds me that was the but growth it's machine. kind of storybook too. Like and he made this comparison directly with Lagardia. Like he would open a zoo and like. You know, have all like the the the, you know, the bathrooms and stuff would have like little giraffes and elephants whimsically molded into the concrete, and a and a waiter with you know epaulets and you know 
and yeah. fancy shine shoes would hand him the key on a velvet pillow, and he yeah. would turn the. It's it's storybook. It's incredible. He was a good showman as well when he when he needed to do it to keep the machine going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean it's it's. I mean, I think the detail in the book is 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 certainly fascinating. I think too, it really gives you an idea of any time that you are arrogant enough to to operate power, you're probably going to poison yourself and be an <laughs> awful person. I think it can be liberating if you actually are kind of fundamentally kind of an affable and good person. It can liberate you and you can do good things if you are unbound and actually have power at the highest levels. But if you are a jerk, you're, it's going to continue to corrupt you. Or He's something. a jerk, but he was also just a, a g- absolute genius. Yeah. He's a genius, absolutely. Oh, and I love the fact, too, like, throughout it, like, this article on him, like, Carol writes beautifully, but every time he t- quotes from Moses, Moses is a better writer. than He's a good writer. <laughs> yeah, and, like, it's like, boy, like, he could have done anything he wanted. He yes. was the most capable man of like any kind of comparable position in politics in the 20th century. And, yeah. what, and what did he did? He was like the mid-century liberal Ubermensch. Yeah, and what did he do? He made he made a bunch of stuff for cars. Exactly. Like, which job. is the which is the you know the, the avatar of mid-century liberalism. It's like, "Oh yeah, we have these great public projects and stuff and then we plowed it all into cars and didn't make any provisions for the future and around the 70s it begins to fall apart." Yeah. And yet the system contains on cuz even though we're not building in California, we still have the same stupid ways that people yes. operate in the sprawl-based culture, yeah. but just without anyone at the wheel. And these chapters about like, you know, GIs came back from the war and people could remember a time before traffic and people were driving 45 whole minutes to work and it's a humiliating experience. And then people just kind of got used to it. Yeah. And in, in, in a matter of a decade, people got used to it. And now that's life. Like if you, you complain about traffic, it's hack. Like, and if you try to like wax romantic and, you know, heartfelt about the humiliations of commuting, it's like, oh yeah, what are you, come on. You, you're like, you're, you're a jerk. That's, that's hack to yeah. talk about that. But like that, there was th- this substance in people that, that people, yeah, people remembered a time before all this crap. And then now it's just completely 100% everyday life. And we've internalized and learned, basically learned nothing from Robert Moses. We learned he was a jerk and that we didn't want to knock down Greenwich Village, but we learned absolutely nothing from It feels like from finally this. we're backing in, you know, just dumbly to finally doing like in New York congestion pricing. Finally. You know, maybe we shouldn't have cars in Manhattan. Oh, who would have thought of that? And then maybe you can do value capture and pay for subways and stuff. It's like, I think you need a kind of coherent vision to make this all happen, but good first steps. I think, yeah. I mean, you look at like William Vickery, who's, uh, you know, uh, George's professor based out of Columbia for the mid 20th century. He was writing congestion pricing proposals in the 1950s. Yeah. You know, he was writing all these different proposals for actually making the subways financing work. And yeah. like, this is like, well, it's, you, they didn't get enough of kind of, co- <laughs> you need a kind of, Everyone to sign on. A coherent vision and power to execute. Yeah, Vickery, unfortunately, didn't have the second, which is, okay. Uh, but it's not too late to read his papers and do something about <laughs> it, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to sign off. You ready to sign off? Yeah, I think that about covers it. Uh, I been- mean, again, read the book. It's great. It's a brilliant work of history, of narrative, yeah. of politics, of economics. It's fantastic. 
Yeah, and if if I don't know if this book series was a, a good concept, I enjoyed it. So oh, if, yeah. if you want to hear more book series uh, with Max uh, or you know with anyone else who wants to read, we can have I, mean, I think two people as much as you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, l- requests uh, welcome. There's a few interesting books that I like to read. Oh, the Howard Howard Jarvis book. That's a that's a must. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> but for now, signing off. Bye. You can find all episodes of this radio program at seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford.